Welcome to the 40th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all other A&E podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, which is a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to check them out. Also, check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate or buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. We will hop into the podcast. We're going to start it off with Russia. Keep in mind, this is being recorded at roughly 8.30 Pacific time Sunday night. So last night in Moscow, Daria Dugina was assassinated by a car bomb while driving her Land Cruiser Prado at around 21.30 local time. That's 9.30. Dugina was the daughter of Alexander Dugin, a Russian philosopher and supporter of President Vladimir Putin. The Dugins were president for the Tradition Festival in the village of Zakharovo in Moscow Oblast. Alexander gave a speech on tradition and history and Daria was the guest of honor at the event. Dugina left the festival around 21:25 and was driving around the Mosaisk Highway near Bolshie Vyazeme, which is a village in the area, when the explosive placed on her vehicle detonated. It's believed the explosive was placed during the event while the car was in a parking lot and it was likely put under the driver's side seat. Some believe that Alexander was the target of the assassination, but he decided to switch cars last minute before leaving the event. The car was registered to Daria, his daughter, which has led to some speculation that she was actually the intended target this whole time. The elder Dugan has been described by some as, quote, Putin's brain and has been credited as being a driving force in the decision to invade Ukraine. However, there is a great amount of debate on how close he actually is to the Kremlin. A lot of people with insider knowledge and inside sources in Russia are claiming that Dugan has really never been taken that seriously by the Kremlin or by anyone in Putin's circle. And he's really only made famous by the West. So it sounds like a lot of people are inflating his importance to President Putin. He is an ultranationalist, and he has long seen war between Russia and Ukraine as inevitable. He's also questioned the prospect of Ukrainian statehood many times. An investigation into the killing has been launched, and investigators initially stated that this could have been a contract killing. It's not really clear at this time, though. An unknown Russian group earlier this afternoon called the National Republican Army claimed responsibility for the killing. In a statement, the group said, quote, we declare President Putin a usurper of power and a war criminal who amended the Constitution, unleashed a fratricidal war between the Slavic peoples, and sent Russian soldiers to certain and senseless death, end quote. Former Russian lawmaker Ilya Ponomarev issued a statement or issued the statement on behalf of the group on 
the night of the 21st, which local time was earlier this afternoon. Ponomaryev has lived in Ukraine since 2016 and is a member of the country's armed forces at this time. Again, he's a former Russian lawmaker. He was the only member of the state Duma to vote against the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. And the legitimacy of the National Republican armies in question, because at this point, basically nothing is known about them. And the group has never been heard of before this bombing. So very possible that it could just be BS. Many Russian and Ukrainian separatists were quick to blame the Ukrainian government, of course, including Denis Pushilin, who is the head of the Donetsk People's Republic. At this time, Ukraine has denied any involvement. So uh, personally, I really doubt that we're ever going to find out what really happened. But of course, we'll keep you guys updated if something does. Moving on to China, this reporting is coming from Alcon S2. You guys should give him a follow on Instagram. That's at Alcon S2. He does some great reporting. He's actually on the Lethal Minds team with me. He writes for the Bulletin. Uh, great. He focuses on the Pacific. He's a former uh, New Zealand Army guy. Again, definitely suggest checking him out. And this reporting is from him. Former commander of the China Coast Guard, Vice Admiral Wang. Song Kai was recently promoted as the commander of the East China Sea Fleet and deputy commander of the Eastern Theater Command. In his new position, Song Kai will play a pivotal role in China's moves towards Taiwan as the Eastern Theater Command is the frontline command in the region. As the head of the Coast Guard, he was known to send patrols inside Japanese waters near the contested Senkaku Islands, known as the Daiyu Islands in China. Song Kai also has experience commanding multiple guided missile frigates and destroyers, as well as other offshore commands. This promotion could signal a more hardline military stance in the region, particularly towards Taiwan. Also in China, the country is undergoing a massive heat wave and a historic drought. On the 19th, the city of Chongqing recorded a temperature of 45 degrees Celsius, that's 113 degrees Fahrenheit, the highest ever recorded temperature in China outside of Xinjiang in the east. The worst drought in 60 years has hit the country very hard. And keep in mind, droughts haven't been recorded more than 60 years. So who knows actually how, how bad this drought really is. The Yangtze River is only at half of its normal width, and it's particularly affected the electrical grid in the area. Thousands of factories in Chongqing and in Sichuan province were ordered to shut down for six days out of the week after a large drop in reserves of hydropower. Sichuan province gets roughly 80% of its power from hydroelectric dams, which means the province is being hit probably hardest by this drought. Residents in the provincial capital, Chengdu, which is a metropolitan area of over 16 million people, were ordered to set their home air conditioning units to no lower than 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Moving on to Afghanistan, the National Resistance Front is continuing its campaign against the Taliban. Keep in mind, we have officially passed one year since the Afghan Republic fell to the Taliban. That was on August 15, 2021. The NRF will likely ramp up its attacks on the Taliban before the fighting season comes to a close with the arrival of colder weather. Uh, some of you asked me what the fighting season is, so I guess I should explain that. Uh, fighting in the cold is particularly miserable. I obviously can't speak to experience, but I would imagine it is, and that's what I've heard. 
Um, so in Afghanistan, it gets pretty cold in the winters. Um, people don't want to fight in the winters. They kind of wait for the warmer months. Uh, and as well, it snows a lot. So the mountain passes become uh, impassable, right, with the snow. So once that kind of melts with the warmer weather, that's when really all the insurgents come out to do their fighting. It's been like that for decades. That's just how it is. On August 15th, on the one-year anniversary of the fall of the Afghan Republic, the NRF attacked a group of Taliban fighters in Panjir province and captured 40 of them and all of their equipment. And they posted a lot of pictures to social media as proof. On the 19th, the NRF again ambushed a group of Taliban fighters, killing four of them in Rostak in Takar province. Four of their weapons were also taken from them. On the 20th, heavy fighting between the two sides was recorded in Kenji in Panjir province. Again, the Taliban denies any fighting is currently taking place, but videos show their helicopters striking NRF positions in the area, so obviously something's going on. Casualty figures still aren't available at this time, but I do expect that fighting to continue on. We will take a quick break and we will be right back with Africa. Over the week in Egypt, Egyptian special forces killed Hamza Adel al-Zamili, who is the second in command of the Islamic State Sinai province, ISSP. Zamili, who is a Palestinian, planned the 2017 al-Rada mosque massacre in which 40 gunmen killed 305 people at a mosque in Bir al-Abd, North Sinai. That was the deadliest terrorist attack in the country's history, and he was killed in an Egyptian operation along with nine other Islamic State fighters. Military operations in the area are still ongoing, but that is a pretty big victory for Egypt. Moving on to Somalia on the 19th, Al-Shabaab militants committed a complex attack on the Hayat Hotel in the capital Mogadishu. The attack opened up with two car bombs that was followed by gunmen rushing into the area. The Hyatt Hotel is frequented by government officials, and the head of the National Intelligence and Security Agency is among those wounded. The siege that followed saw the deployment of U.S. and Turkish-trained special forces and the Somali Police Special Unit. The operation to clear the hotel went into Saturday night, and the death toll at this point is unclear. We do know at least 12 people were killed, probably more than that, though dozens other were wounded. Most of the casualties are civilians. Moving on to the Americas in Mexico, on the 16th, the body of Mexican independent journalist Juan Aron Lopez was found in San Luis, Rio, Colorado, in Sonora. Lopez had been missing since August 9th, and he died from head trauma due to blunt force, according to an autopsy. San Luis is right across the border from Yuma, Arizona, and is known for its healthcare offices that are frequented by Americans. However, the area isn't a stranger to cartel violence. In March, 11 bodies were found in a pit near San Luis. Lopez is the 18th journalist to be killed in Mexico this year. Four journalists were killed last week during a string of attacks in Ciudad Juarez that we covered in our last episode. Human Rights Watch said that 2022 is shaping up to be the deadliest year for journalists in Mexico. That report is coming from their office in Latin America. Mexico was also said to be the deadliest country for journalists in 2021 by the International Press Institute. 
Moving on to the United States, on the 16th, a Pakistani doctor living in Rochester, Minnesota, pled guilty to attempting to provide material support to a terrorist organization. Mohammed Massoud, 30 years old, was formally employed as a research coordinator at a medical clinic in Rochester, living in the U.S. under an H-1B visa. Between the months of January and March in 2020, he pledged allegiance to ISIS and expressed some desire to conduct alone attacks within the United States. In February 2020, he purchased a plane ticket to Amman, Jordan, from where he planned to go to Syria to join the Islamic State. However, his plans were changed when Jordan closed its border due to the COVID-19 pandemic. He then planned to travel to Los Angeles, where an individual claimed that they would smuggle him into ISIS territory via a shipping container. Masood was arrested at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport when he checked in for his departing flight. It wasn't yet stated if his contact in Los Angeles was an informant or not. In our last story on the 19th, Al-Shafi Al-Sheikh was sentenced to eight life sentences in prison in a U.S. court after being convicted in April of hostage-taking, conspiracy to murder U.S. citizens, and supporting a terrorist organization. The 34-year-old Sudanese-born Londoner was part of an ISIS cell made up of Britons known as the Beatles. The group is responsible for the deaths of four American hostages, that is James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, Kayla Mueller, and Peter Kasig in 2014. In total, the cell beheaded at least 27 hostages in Syria, according to U.S. officials. El-Sheikh is the highest-profile Islamic State fighter to stand trial in the United States. One man in the three-man cell, Alexander Koti, pled guilty to all charges against him in U.S. court, and he did not go before a jury. The Beatles' third and final member, Mohammed Mwazi, was killed in 2015 by a U.S. drone strike in Syria. El-Sheikh has appealed his conviction and fired his lawyers since April, saying he did not get a fair trial. That appeal likely won't go anywhere, but if there are any updates, we will provide you with that information. And I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, anywhere you find podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate. And that is all I have for you guys this week. We will see you around.